Hello and welcome to Quill Achievers Markets Uncut podcast, your weekly insight into topics and issues that we have been discussing here at Quill Achievers. Remember, so you don't miss future episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on whichever streaming platform you are listening on or by following hashtag QCWeekComment on LinkedIn. I'm Andrew Cartwright, Investment Manager based out of our Birmingham office. And this week, I'm joined by regular commentator and head of fixed interest, Richard Carter, and fund research analyst, Carly Morehouse. Welcome, Richard and Carly. Well, what a difference a month makes, and more specifically, what a difference November has made. At the end of October, equity and bond markets were looking pretty depressed, having fallen significantly since July over concerns that interest rates could stay higher for longer than initially thought. But there was a big turnaround in November with some global equity benchmarks, notably in the US, rising by over 9%, and the biggest monthly rise since November 2020, when there was a breakthrough in the development of a COVID vaccine. US bond markets also had one of the best months for nearly 40 years, with prices surging and yields falling. This dramatic turnaround was driven by ever-growing optimism that central banks, certainly across the US, Europe and UK, are winning the battle with inflation. And last week's report from the Eurozone saw inflation decline more than expected, down to 2.4% from 2.9% in October, and significantly down from its peak of over 10% a year ago. We even saw some positive news from the UK housing market last week, with prices rising again, and unexpectedly so in November. But despite all the positive news and growing investor confidence that we are at peak interest rates and we will soon start to see cuts, the tone from central banks is far more muted. And although inflation in the eurozone is not very far away from the European Central Bank's 2% target, the OECD last week forecast that neither the ECB or the Bank of England would be in a position to start cutting rates until 2025 and doesn't expect rates in the US to start to fall until the second half of 2024. Whilst the Federal Reserve is widely expected to leave interest rates unchanged for a third month in a row in December, there certainly seems to be no suggestion that even the discussion around rate cuts are yet on the agenda. So, Richard, with inflation across Western economies continuing to fall sharply, surely there can't be any need for further interest rate rises. And OK, even if cuts aren't necessarily imminent, could we really have to wait so long for rates to start to fall? Or are markets and investors simply getting too far ahead of themselves? No, good question, Andrew. I mean, I, I think there's you know, very little prospect of any more uh, rate hikes, certainly with, you know, as you mentioned, inflation coming down. It's you know, it's inevitable that central bankers, having been too slow to raise rates to get on top of inflation, are going to be cautious about talking about cuts. And I think um, they're always going to err on the side of caution, you know, for now. But I think, as I say, rate rate hikes are are off the agenda now, and it's it's really about when the first rate cuts are going to be. You know, and, and markets can be, you know, markets love a narrative. Markets, you know, can't don't like the sort of rates will be on hold for a while kind of uh, mindset. They need to start thinking about when the first rate cut's going to be. That's just that's just inevitable. And it's amazing how quickly the narratives uh, can shift. Um, so actually, the markets now, um, on the back of some, you know, sort of fairly soft data recently, expect um, the Fed to be cutting rates in the spring of next year and sort of the Bank of England uh, not far behind. So that's uh, ahead of possibly, you know, some economic forecasters and commentators. But, um, you know, so so it does look like we could get some 
uh, rate cuts next year. But I think, um, you know, in your comment, are, are markets getting ahead of themselves? There is a risk of that. Um, and I really think you need the data to justify it. At, you know, at the moment, although inflation's come down, labour markets are still very strong. Uh, wage growth is still uh, pretty strong, particularly here in the UK. And I don't think central banks will be keen to cut rates until that shows some sign of loosening and, and some sign of weakening. So I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll be watching pretty closely over the next few months what payrolls do in the US, uh, what the labour market numbers do in here in the UK. And if they do start to soften, then yes, we can, you know, we can look forward to some rate cuts, uh, you know, fairly soon. So whilst we wait for further news and data around uh, that those potential interest rate cuts, there is, of course, a lot of other things going on in the world what with various wars and conflicts. And notably, we saw an end uh, to the ceasefire in Gaza over the weekend. We also have US elections coming up next year and the potential for a UK election uh, as well. And, and Richard, as investment managers, clients often ask us about the impacts of politics, wars and conflicts on financial markets uh, and their investments. And, and there are, of course, always conflicts and elections going on at, at any given time. So in your experience, do such events really have much of a, a meaningful impact, say beyond uh, making the news headlines and, and perhaps a few winners and losers at a, a microeconomic level? Does what is going on in, say, Gaza or if Republicans win the U.S. election or if Labour becomes the next U.S. government, would we really see much impact on investments on a, on a wider scale? And if so, how might that manifest itself? Well, I think they can. Uh, these events do do matter some some more than others, but we definitely need to take um, you know pay close attention uh, to what's going on in these sort you know different parts of the world and in you know, different political. Uh, situations. I mean, I you know, uh, you, you know, you mentioned there in terms of you know taking elections first. I guess you me- you mentioned there the U.S. elections and U.K. elections. I don't think the U.K. election matters really much beyond, like you say, a few mi- your micro sector here and there. You know, Keir Starmer's policies are not vastly different from Rishi Sunak's. It might be a different tone, but to, let's be honest, from a, from a sort of macroeconomic point of view. There's not much between the two parties. And I, so I don't think um, investors will be too bothered about the UK election. We don't know when it is, but let's say it's in May. But uh, I'm not sure that one matters too much. The difference between Biden and Trump or whoever wins uh, the US election probably is greater. Um, so I think that will definitely be a big theme uh, next year. I mean, you know, we, we don't we don't yet know who's going to be standing. Um, but um I would say, you know, as I say, US election matters a damn sight more than the UK one next year. Uh, in terms of the, um, in terms of sort of wars, conflicts, all the rest of it, as, you know, as I say, you never quite know. You do have to pay very, very close attention to it. You know, go, often I think the impact is, you know, markets are most concerned about the impact, not necessarily from a sort of economic growth point of view, because often these regions, you know, their impact on global growth is not massive. But the impact on commodity prices potentially is a big mechanism. Um, and I think, you know, the worry with Gaza was that that would spread around the region and you know, Iran would get involved and it would push your price up to you know, $150 a barrel. So far, that hasn't happened, you know, which, you know, which has encouraged markets to kind of look elsewhere and put their focus elsewhere, even though obviously, um, you know, the humanitarian side of it's been, been very uh, troubling. But then you contrast that with Ukraine, you know, Ukraine was a big shot, but it did make it did have a big impact on um, commodity prices, obviously the natural gas price and everything like that, food prices. So, you know, 
that that really had big ripple effects to what um, interest happened to interest rates and happened to um, the global economy. So you know these things do matter, but I think um, uh, if if it's confined to the specific area and it doesn't affect commodities, then um, you know the, the, the market tensions pretty, moves on pretty quickly. So it sounds like the sort of the key thing that to look out for is, is commodities, uh, and no doubt if Trump does feature in. Uh, the U.S. election race, uh, that will certainly um, feature heavily in, in headlines. Um, so I'm also delighted to be joined once again by fund research analyst Carly Morehouse. And Carly has just got back from a research trip to Asia. And this provides an opportune moment to get an update on what has been going on across the region and within her favourite funds. But before we talk about that, I wanted to mention that Quill Achievement's fund research team have just won Fund Selection Team of the Year at the World Partnerships Awards for the third consecutive year. And last month, Carly also won Fund Selector of the Year at Investment Week's Women in Investment Award. So congratulations, Carly, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. So Carly, we discussed Asia in one of our market updates during the summer. And one of the key observations at the time was that the much anticipated post-recovery in China had yet to materialize. We're almost six months further on, and judging by the ongoing performance of the Chinese stock market, things don't seem to have improved. So what has been going on in China from an investment perspective, and what is the latest thinking from those fund managers that you visited whilst in Hong Kong? Yeah, so we met with over 20 fund managers, um, You know, whether that be Asia, emerging markets, India, or China-only fund managers, and I was actually surprised at how many were quite positive on China. I think valuations was clearly a big factor in that, with many saying that China and, and particularly Hong Kong are trading at multi-year lows on, on several metrics. But they also highlighted that while we may not be at the bottom with regards to the economy, they think we are very close and that's giving them a bit more optimism. I think what was interesting is that last year we had so many ask the question of whether China is uninvestable. Um, however, you know, that barely came up. Um, but when it did, um, it was it was completely dismissed. You know, China is the world's second largest economy with you know, very large and liquid stock markets. And you know, as much as reshoring and, and nearshoring is happening, it's only just the beginning. And I think the fact of the matter is that China is still so intertwined with global trade. You can't just cut it out. And I think sitting here in the UK, it might seem like a possibility. But you know, when you're so much closer to China, like these managers are, it, it actually seemed a bit ridiculous to them. Um, and you know, we certainly started to feel that in Hong Kong, as as that's where we saw a noticeable difference with regards to to Chinese tourists being back. You know, we didn't see any in Tokyo, but in Hong Kong, we were kind of fighting our way through um, group upon group of of mainland Chinese tourists at, at any of the main um, tourist hotspots, and. Um, Group tours have only just been allowed to resume, so we can can only expect this to continue to increase globally, but I guess starting more um, with Asia. But I would just um, highlight that many didn't shy away from the fact that investing in China has changed over the past few years. I think you know the areas that people want to invest in has become smaller as, as policy has increasingly become more and more important. That being said, there's there's no shortage of high quality companies in these spaces. You know, as I said. China has a very large and liquid stock market with with thousands of companies, um, with more being added each year. And China is a very entrepreneurial place. Um, I think you only need to look at something like New Oriental Education, um, you know, a company which fell from close to two hundred dollars a share to just twelve dollars in twenty twenty one when the government 
made after school education unprofitable overnight. But you know, today the company is back up to just over $80 after coming back um, and relaunching with different types of classes that aren't aimed at exam prep. Um, but many did state, however, that the property sector issues are very real in China and wouldn't be going away anytime soon. And you know it's probably going to take years to fix. Um, an analyst we spoke to who had just been at a conference in China was saying that on the internal flights she took, she could hear people around her discussing um, property and, and many saying that they really wanted to buy, but were, were put off by the falling house prices. So the demand seems like it's there, but we just need to see some stabilization in prices. And and I think the measures that we've seen from, from the government could start to help at some point going forward. Um, but nonetheless, the, the weakness in the real estate sector is having an impact on on people's wealth, which is a lot of Chinese people's main investment. And this is the key thing at the moment. You know, with that and the fragility of the economy, people are being a bit more cautious with, with regards to spending. So they have the money. Um, throughout the, the pandemic, households saved a lot. Um, household deposits were estimated to have risen about 60% since 2020. So they're sitting on a lot of excess cash. Um, but I guess, you know, if you if you weren't sure if you would lose your job next week, you, you probably wouldn't spend either. So it is understandable. So China clearly gets a lot of the media attention, and rightly so, given that it is the world's second largest economy, uh, as you mentioned, uh, and there are clear sort of problems uh, with the, uh, the property sector at the moment. Um, but there is, of course, far more to investing in Asia than just China. And in terms of population, India is expected to overtake China very soon, if indeed that hasn't happened already. And in stark contrast to China, the Indian stock market has performed very well during 2023, and we clearly can't just simply view Asia as a, a homogenous region driven by what's going on in China. So, Carly, what has been going on elsewhere across Asia and why has there been such divergence in investment returns between uh, different countries? Yeah, as you said, you know, Asia is made up of so many different countries with um, you know, different drivers of returns, macro backdrops, different domestic markets, political systems. Um, you know, which which can sometimes be ignored a little because of China. China is the key focus because it's such a big part of the indices at close to 30 percent. So when China moves, it, it moves the whole index. Now your your next biggest exposures are, of course, India, followed then by um, Taiwan and Korea. And after that, while you have some pretty exciting markets that investors have become increasingly positive on, like Indonesia, these smaller ASEAN countries just don't have the size or, or liquidity for, for meaningful exposure, particularly for the larger funds in this space. But um, yeah, I guess we've already spoken about China. So you know, India has continued to do well this year, despite some, some volatility um, earlier in the year. So while everyone goes on about how cheap China is, um, the opposite is said for India, particularly the consumer companies in India. You know, They're trading at very high multiples. But there are other parts of the market where investors see value, um, like financials. Many of the managers we saw highlighted this area with um, many citing one bank in particular as potentially the best run bank in the world. Yet its share price performance this year certainly isn't suggesting that. Despite being optically expensive, the optimism for India continues, though, as, as longer term, the very large and young population with with their increasing wealth and increasing use of smartphones and digitization, that that really has long-term investors excited, um, as has the government's reforms to improve the economy over the years with things like the um, goods and services tax and 
Um, you know, there are so many um, reforms as well that are encouraging um, FDI at a time when when many want to diversify their supply chains away from China. And you know, prior to COVID, India's economy wasn't in a great place, and and that's only just started to turn. So many India bulls argue that after two years of good performance, we still have further to go here. And we just heard that India's real GDP grew seven point six percent year on year in the last quarter, beating consensus by some way. So you know, things are looking good. But it is worth highlighting that state elections are going on in India right now, uh, with Modi's BJP doing well, suggesting his re-election in next year's general elections. However, there will probably still be um, quite a lot of volatility in the run up to it. So just quickly uh, touching on Taiwan and Korea, both indices are dominated by TSMC and Samsung, respectively. But, you know, outside of that, these are still very tech heavy and are quite correlated with global growth. So, you know, given the excitement for AI this year, um, these markets have really benefited. One of the key themes that you have favoured within your fund selection has been focusing on consumer expenditure and the emergence of, of uh, and growth of the affluent middle classes. And you touched upon that um, with regards to, to India. In the West and certainly across the US, Europe and the UK, we've been uh, fairly obsessed with, with spiralling inflation and the sharply rising interest rates. The central banks have looked to get inflation under control. And essentially that is achieved through high interest rates dampening down consumer demand. Um, Carly, has high inflation and interest rates also been an issue across Asia? And if so, has this um, impacted or changed the thinking on that consumer expenditure theme? It's quite a mix across the region, as you would expect, um, with the highest invasion of, of the major Asian economies being India, about 5.5 percent, while China is below 1 percent. So quite a difference. But you know, on the whole, still lower than what we're seeing here or in the US. I think inflation hasn't really impacted or changed our view on the consumer in these areas. Because for a lot of emerging markets, high inflation is pretty normal. They have a lot of um, recent experience of dealing with this, which is why many um, EM central banks started raising rates before we did in the West. I would say that from our trip, we heard the term down trading a lot um, with reference to the Chinese consumer, you know, perhaps where the term premiumization used to be. So basically, because of what I was saying before regarding um, you know, people being more cautious with their spending, People aren't buying the more expensive products at the moment. They're just you know, opting for the cheaper versions. But you know that hasn't got to do with um, really inflation. It's simply consumer confidence based off of you know their own perception of their wealth and, and uncertainty about the economy overall. So thank you, Richard and Carly, for those great insights and to you all for listening. Did you enjoy our discussion on the podcast today? We'd love to hear from our listeners. So please review the show now, wherever you're listening and share it on your socials and tag us at Cruel And to make sure you don't miss a future episode, tap the subscribe button. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, head over to our website, www.cruelachievit.com, where you can read the accompanying market overview as well as subscribe to our weekly comment newsletter. You can also stay up to date with our thoughts on market news, industry insights, and our upcoming events and webinars on our website or our social media pages. Finally, if you have any questions you'd like to ask one of our experts for our next podcast, then simply ask them via the weekly comments page on our website. We love to hear your questions. And that's it for today. So thank you again to Richard and Carly and to you all for listening. See you next time.